This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to the show Michael Clare. Michael is a Hampshire College professor emeritus, the professor of peace and world security studies. He is a prolific author and the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. Michael Clare, I want to share with you and our listeners my reaction to the speech to the joint session of Congress by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and the reporting after it. And then I desperately want you to tell me why I'm wrong. Not about this, which is he gave a great speech. Uh, He solidified support, I believe, in the Congress, at least for some time, to pay for the war in Ukraine and to pay for the weapons that the United States will supply, at least in part, the needed weapons for Ukraine. But following that, there was the speech and the announcements by uh, the Russian president, uh, Vladimir Putin, saying, I'm going to increase the size of the army by a half a million men. I'm spending more on defense. I'm going to engage in this war until we take over Ukraine and we win. And he didn't seem to be faking. It might be hyperbolic. Um, He may or may not be able to do it, but he has a large country with enormous resources, the ability to, in fact, supply weapons. uh, And although Russia has paid dearly for this war, it seems that Russia is intent on continuing this war of attrition, and it can engage in that for longer, I fear, than Ukraine can tolerate suffering from the bombardments of Russian missiles, which seems to me gets us to the place where we can predict that this war will go on and on and on. Many, many people, will, civilians will die, many soldiers will die, more cities will be destroyed, and there's no, there's no end into all of this. There's no end in sight. Please tell me I'm wrong. I think the war is going to go on for a while, Bill. I can't tell you it's going to end soon. Uh, I, I think both Zelensky and Putin on the same day hinted that they, they intend to keep continue fighting until they reach their objectives, which are mutually, you know, incompatible. So there'll be a lot of fighting. I don't think it's going to go on forever because uh, there are logistical and material impediments to that. Oh, good. Uh, Tell me what they are. Tell me what it is that's going to precipitate getting, uh, well, getting them to a negotiation, calling a ceasefire, uh, doing something like Korea, uh, where the war never ends, but then it also doesn't continue. I mean, how, how do you get to an end game here? Uh, there has to be more fighting. That's my sense. Uh, when I say there has to be, it's not because I wish that to happen, but I, I think that Zelensky cannot, uh, with with what's happening to his people, with the attacks on Ukrainian cities and the infrastructure, he has to uh, be able to punish Russia for that and to show gains, uh, to, to carry forth the, the attacks on, on Russian occupiers. So I, I expect that the Ukrainian military is planning an offensive of some sort where we can't be sure. I could speculate where those offenses might occur offensives might occur, uh, but I think he has to keep on fighting and and strike blows against Russia. And Putin, on his part, is in a similar situation. All, all they've had is reports of defeats over the past six months or so. And even though the Russian media does everything it possibly can to disguise that fact, it's impossible to disguise the fact that this was not a quick victory and that Russian forces have had to withdraw from places they, they held, especially the city of Kherson. So he has to demonstrate some kind of victory in quotation marks, something he could claim as a victory, I think, before he's going to be willing to have talks. So I, I think Russia is going to undertake an offensive of its own. And uh, I could speculate about 
what the outcome of these contending offensives might be, uh, but whatever the case, there will be a large loss of life, I, I suspect, and very intense fighting uh, in the next few months. And uh, uh, one or the other, or both of these offensives will will eventually run out of steam because they're unsustainable. And that's the point at which negotiations will begin. I, I want to follow up on the military aspects of this, what's happening on the battlefield and who controls or which country controls which swaths of the country, Ukraine. I'd like to take a detour to a different aspect of this uh, conflagration, if I might, and ask you about whether Russia's attack on civilians, in particular the civilian infrastructure of Ukraine, make people freeze, make them hungry, make them desperate, whether you think that that is in fact having an effect, having the the desired effect from Putin's point of view, or whether as the mainstream media here reports it, all that does is intensify the resolve of the Ukrainian people, which I expect in part is true, but I also expect it has uh, other effects as well. Tell us what your view is of that the war on the civilian population of Ukraine. Yeah, well, now to begin with, the primary audience for that, I think is not Ukraine, but Russia, uh, because it's the one thing he's been able to brag about to Russians is that, uh, you know, maybe our forces are stalled on the battlefield uh, but look, we have all these missiles and drones and we could attack Ukraine at will and destroy their infrastructure. Ray, 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 aren't, aren't our forces terrific? Uh, uh, to compensate for all of the negative news that the Russian media has, has had to, to, to try to twist around in the past six months or so. So a lot of it is directed at Russian domestic opinion, and especially right-wing Russian opinion, uh, because he doesn't, Putin doesn't care about the left, the peace movement. He, he, he worries about right-wing nationalists who said he wasn't doing enough. So, okay, now he's somewhat demonstrated that he, he can, uh, uh, you know, mount a fury against Ukraine, uh, rah, rah. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, what is it doing on uh, on the Ukrainian population? There's no evidence that it has caused them to slow down their fighting on the ground, which is what matters. Uh, until until there's any evidence that that this is going to cause uh, the Ukrainian military to slow down or to lose their will to fight. Um, it's causing immense misery, but it's not affecting the battlefield situation. Okay. Talk to us about the battlefield situation, because my reading over the past two days indicates that there have been large swaths of Ukraine that Russia took over and still controls, and therefore the counterattacks, the offensives that you talk about that the Ukraine military will have to undertake in order to try to seize back that land, that those military operations are going to be very difficult and very costly in terms of the number of casualties and the amount of equipment destroyed, that that going on the offensive is going to be much more difficult uh, at this time than it has been in the past for the Ukrainian military. What's your view of that? Well, I think that's a good assessment, Bill. Uh, it's partly because simply by the fact of pushing Russian forces out of large swaths of territory in the northeast around Kharkiv and in the south around Kherson, uh, it's, it's allowed the Russians to shorten their front lines and to they have more forces per, per mile of defensive line. It, it, it used to be I'm making these numbers up, but they're the right order of magnitude. The battlefield, battle front line used to be like a thousand miles long. Now it's about 700 miles long. So with the same number of troops, Russia has a shorter 
front line to defend. And those troops appear to be digging in from aerial photography, satellite photography. It appears that they're building trenches and defensive posts and the like. So they're preparing for defense. And that uh, means that a Ukrainian offensive will prove harder, which is why uh, Mr. Zelensky, when he was in Washington, is asking for things like tanks, which is what you need to break through defensive lines and a lot of artillery and artillery shells. And he's gonna get a, some of what he wants, uh, but so far he's not being given large numbers of tanks. And, you know, the number of artillery shells that are available in the West are, are limited. And there's a point in which it will be impossible to supply the needs to, to, to fight this kind of war along a 700 mile front. Uh, so that's, that's one of the limiting factors. So, Michael Clare, we should note for our listeners just joining us, we are speaking with Michael Clare, Hampshire College Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. I'd like to ask you a question that I'm almost embarrassed to ask, but it has occurred to me, and I haven't heard anyone else address it. It's this. The Ukrainians know, more or less, where the Russian forces are. Is there any plan afoot to try to uh, deliver either missiles or uh, massive artilleries uh, against those forces and try to kill uh, thousands or tens of thousands of Russians who are amassed uh, on this 700-mile front that you've described? And, and if not, why not? Uh, uh, Bill, th this, this is underway as we speak. I mean, every day... Uh, the, the Ukrainians are firing artillery shells and drone strikes and, and, and rockets at those dug-in Russian forces. But they're also under attack themselves. Uh, Russia has more artillery than the Ukrainians do. And uh, when, they, when, when any side attacks, it, it, it makes their position identifiable to the other side. So you could shoot, but then you have to run because you can expect a, a uh, reverse a, a counterattack quite you know, immediately. Because this is territory that's flat for the most part and it's hard to hide. So, uh, you know, so both sides shoot and run. Does the increase in the Russian military and the number of forces, this call-up of troops, this enormous uh, increase uh, in the Russian military personnel, is that likely to be effective? It strikes me, and here's where my question comes from, it strikes me, you just can't pull people out, give them a couple weeks of training, send them to the front lines and expect them to be effective soldiers. How, if, how important or what is the, what are the what is the likely result of this call up of former civilians in in Russia who are now about to be frontline troops? Uh, some of them have already been put on the front lines, uh, and we know from intercepts uh, of their conversations with their wives and mothers and girlfriends and the like, uh, that they, they've been largely abandoned by their officers and by the military, given very little training and food and equipment, and many of them have been slaughtered. Uh, so the early, the early indications are, are pretty bad for those people. Now what it looks like is they've, a bit of reality has come, come, come to the fore, and it looks like they're taking a little bit longer time to train the troops um, and give them better equipment. Uh, uh, Vladimir Putin acknowledged in a press conference or an appearance this week that there have been problems with the training of these new troops and that they weren't given good equipment and he made a solemn promise that they would be trained and given proper equipment. Whether this is true or not uh, is hard to tell. 
I, I have a lot of skepticism about the fact that you can take 300,000 people off the street and in a few months turn them into combat-ready capable soldiers. Uh, that doesn't happen so quickly. Uh, so I, I think they're going to just be turned into sheer mass of soldiers and try to be thrown into an, another offensive, possibly against Kiev or another city. Uh, I, I think that's the gamble that he's planning for. And, I, you know, and I think there'll be a lot of mass casualties. But I think this is a desperate man, Putin I'm speaking of, uh, who's lost several throws of the dice already in his mad drive to conquer Ukraine um, and is ready to make another mad throw of the dice. We're speaking with Michael Clare. He's a Hampshire College professor emeritus of peace and world security studies. He's also the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, has been for the last, I believe, 50 years. Michael Clare will continue our conversation right after this. This is Bill Newman. I took about the hand in the heart with something. She said, hey, man, you crazy or something? You seen what happened last time they started? In the mood for takeout? Want to find yoga classes, music lessons, or art supplies nearby? Save 30% on full-value gift certificates to dozens of local businesses and services from Springfield to Brattleboro and everywhere in between. Whether it's a quick bite for lunch, something nice for a special occasion, or just an excuse for some good old retail therapy. Save 30% on full-value gift certificates at the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley that stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night. Ugh. The creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs. Well, if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner, and the creaking noise isn't the stairs, and it's your knee, maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. Call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy. In this the season of thanks and giving, United Way of Franklin and Hampshire Region wants to remind you to support the organizations and people who are doing the hard work of making our community a better place. Please consider supporting a local nonprofit with a tax-deductible gift this December. If you're not sure how to help, go to uw-fh.org to find a list of United Way vetted partner agencies. The United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire Region asks you to help make the Valley a happier, healthier, and more equitable place for everyone. Fred gets on his bike in Ashfield and starts pedaling. A few miles later, soap. Wait, what? When Fred pedals, it turns the soap paddle. Fred's soap is called Just Soap, the soap with a story. So many things at the Atlas Farm store have a story, like Divine Roots Lavender Face Cream. It's luminescent, a woman commented on Divine Roots Etsy page. This time of year, the Atlas Farm store is the Atlas Farm store and gift shop. So many things made here, like pedal-powered Just Soap and luscious lavender face cream. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael Clare, who is a professor emeritus at Hampshire College. His specialty, his field of interest, his field in which he writes, the field in which he is an expert is peace and world security studies. 
He is a prolific author. He's also the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. Michael Clare and I have been talking about the war in Ukraine. I've been asking him uh, for his insights and perspective, which I really appreciate. I would like to ask you about, go back to something that you touched on in our earlier conversation this, this morning, Michael, and it's this. Russia, Russian civilians, for the most part, receive their information, their news, from state media. And the state media, as you pointed out, skews the information enormously, according to state media in Russia. Russia's winning this war, in so many words. Um, And I'm wondering, given that Putin doesn't have the kind of internal political pressure that, for example, the United States government faced when the government here was fighting in Vietnam, that he controls the media, therefore he controls the public opinion, he controls the military. What is the impetus for Putin to come and negotiate? It seems to me he has a free hand, and what he wants to do is incorporate Ukraine into Russia. And that's his goal. That's his stated goal. He seems to believe it. He thinks he can do it. What's the pressure? What, any internal pressure or external pressure on him? to come and negotiate? Well, I, I, I think he's under different kinds of pressures. I mentioned the right-wing ultra-nationalist forces. Uh, some people call them mill bloggers, military bloggers. There is a, a culture, a media culture within Russia of, of hardline pro-war forces that are pushing him to be even more aggressive in Ukraine than he is, and uh, suggested that uh, that Russia that Russian military officers, senior officers, have been incompetent. So you have seen Putin make a visit to the front lines, and top officers making more visit to the front lines. Uh, that's a response to pressure that 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 the le- top leadership is incompetent. Uh, so there is a lot of unrest. I think there is a lot of unrest be, behind the scenes in Russia that this is going badly, even though they read every day the headlines that everything is going well. Uh, it's hard to disguise the fact that Russian forces seem to keep moving backwards. You, you can't disguise that entirely. So there is a lot of discontent, I think, behind the scenes in Russia that Putin has to worry about. And and lately he's been upping the ante uh, in his uh, speech, these speeches that you allude to, Bill, uh, talking, trying to transform the war into an epic struggle between Russia and the West and comparing this to World War II, the, the epic struggle against the Nazis to try to mobilize the Russian population. I, I don't get any indication that this is actually working. Um, and some of his comments lately have hinted that there might be another mobilization of hundreds of thousands of more soldiers. And that is certainly would not sit well on the Russian population. One aspect of this military confrontation that at least I haven't heard or read much about in the last number of months is Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons, so-called mm-hmm. tactical nuclear weapons, battlefield nuclear weapons. Do you think that that has been effectively put to the side as a consideration, or, or should we still have this as a worry front and center? I, I think it's a worry. I think it has diminished as a worry. And for this, I think we have President Xi Jinping of China to thank, uh, and President, uh, Prime Minister Modi of India to thank. Really? I think that, yes. I think those people uh, spoke to Putin and said, no way can you use nuclear weapons. Now, these are the these are the two countries, India and China, that are keeping Russia alive by buying its oil. Uh, th- th- those are the two leading consumers of Russian oil now that Europe is stopping to buy Russian energy. So they're essential to Russia's continued 
uh, fighting. And when, when they said at a meeting in November, I think it was in Central Asia, uh, it's reported that both of them told Putin he must not use nuclear weapons, and then they would have to sever their ties. Uh, and, and since then, he has he has stopped making those threats, and um, so I think the the threat level has reduced. But still, uh, President Biden has uh, been very very cautious about providing uh, Ukraine with weapons uh, that might uh, escalate the conflict, which is why he's holding back long range weapons, jet fighters and long-range missiles that could attack deep into Russia, uh, American weapons that could be used to strike deep into Russia, and, and that might give Putin the pretext to, to escalate again. Do you share that? I don't want to say it's a determination, but it's certainly the, a policy at this point for the United States to not provide the uh, offensive weapons that we could uh, provide to Ukraine. Do you think that's the right call at this point? So here I'm divided between my, my heart and my brain, because uh, when I read the accounts of what Russia is doing to destroy uh, food and water and sanitation supplies, you know, you, you just say to yourself, why can't they retaliate against the bases that are deep in Russia from where these attacks are launched? And you know, if, if I, I were a Ukrainian, I would I would want to strike back, because Russia is afraid to to mount those attacks from within Ukraine itself, because they they would be destroyed. So they're they're firing them from long distances from within Russia, um, and so emotionally you would want to see them struck. Uh, but I think it's the correct thing to do uh, to avoid. Uh, this being turned into a European, I mean, correct from Biden's point of view, uh, to avoid turning this into an all-European war, which could easily escalate to the nuclear level. So I, I think that is the right right judgment. We're going to leave it there. We have been speaking with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, and a regular with us on this show to help us understand what is happening in Ukraine what is happening with this war, and what is happening in the world's reaction to this war. He's been with us many times since the beginning of the war, and I hope you will continue to share your insights. Michael Clare, thank you so very much. Thank you, Bill. Let's just hope that the war doesn't go on so long that you need me to come back to talk about it. Yes, so I would like to. I can't wait for the day when we say, this is Michael Clare's last appearance on this show, at least for a while. Michael, thank you so much. My pleasure. This is Bill Moore, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. An Amherst resident and former captain for the Massachusetts State Police has been indicted for the possession and distribution of child pornography. 62-year-old Francis Hart was arrested in August 2021 following an online investigation led by the Attorney General's office, which recovered computers and a cell phone containing explicit photos of minors. Hart had worked for the State Fire Marshal's office and as a detective captain for the State Police prior to retiring. The city of Holyoke plans to use $2 million in ARPA funds towards the ongoing Victory Theater restoration project. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia says the project has the potential to become the cultural epicenter in Western Mass. My focus continues to be, and it has to be, internally so that we can, again, continue to move the needle here and trying to leverage the opportunities that I know Holyoke can achieve but hasn't been because of whatever intricacies are happening inside our local government that's not allowing the level of growth that I know we're capable of doing. The total estimated cost to restore the 100-year-old building is $55 million, and the project has already been awarded $31 million in state and federal tax credits. The East Hampton City Council will pay the $18,000 bill for the grand opening celebration at the new Mountain View School. The council discussed the issue for close to an hour and finally voted to use money from the city's cannabis stabilization fund to foot the bill. 
Scattered rain showers this morning, scattered snow showers this afternoon. It's windy all day with wind gusts over 30 miles per hour. Watch out for a refreeze late this afternoon as we dip back below freezing. Clouds cold tonight and windy. Overnight lows of 4 to 10. Partly to mostly sunny, windy tomorrow. A high of 18 to 22. Mid-20s and mostly sunny on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El Servicio de Rentas Internas de Estados Unidos no realizó las auditorías obligatorias de Donald Trump de manera oportuna durante su presidencia, según descubrió un panel del Congreso el martes, lo que planteó dudas sobre las declaraciones del expresidente y los principales miembros de su administración que afirmaron que no podía publicar sus declaraciones de impuestos debido a las revisiones en curso. Un informe publicado por la mayoría demócrata en el Comité de Medios y Arbitrios de la Cámara de Representantes indicó que la administración Trump puede haber ignorado un requisito del IRS que data de 1977 y exige auditorías de las declaraciones de impuestos de un presidente. El IRS solo comenzó a auditar las declaraciones de impuestos de Trump de 2016 el 3 de abril de 2019, más de dos años después de la presidencia de Trump y solo meses después de que los demócratas tomaran el control de la Cámara. Esa fecha coincide con con el representante Richard Neal, el presidente del panel, solicitando al IRS información relacionada con las declaraciones de impuestos de Trump. No hubo ninguna sugerencia de que Trump, quien anunció una tercera candidatura presidencial, buscara influir directamente en el IRS o disuadir a la agencia de revisar su información fiscal. Pero el informe encontró que el proceso de auditoría estaba inactivo en el mejor de los casos. El New York Times descubrió que antes de ingresar a la Casa Blanca, Trump enfrentaba una auditoría del IRS potencialmente vinculada a un reembolso de impuestos de 72.9 millones de dólares derivado de 700 millones en pérdidas que reclamó en 2009. Los documentos publicados el martes indican que Trump continuó recaudando beneficios fiscales de esas pérdidas hasta 2018. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We welcome to the studio Carly Tartikoff, Professor Carly Tartikoff, and the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks. This is a special edition of Black in the Valley, which is usually on Monday on the show, but we have them with us today and their special guest, who is the Reverend Johnny M. Wilson, Jr., Reverend Wilson is the pastor at the Granville Federated Church, which is a UCC and American Baptist Federated Church in Granville, Massachusetts. I'm going to turn the microphone over in just a moment to Professor Carly Tartikoff and the Reverend Jacqueline Smith-Crooks. But Reverend Wilson, I'm just fascinated by this. You're in Granville, Massachusetts. It's a place that (laughs) most people in Massachusetts don't know about. Many people in Western Massachusetts couldn't locate on a map. Uh, It's a really small town. It's not quite on the southwestern, at the southwestern corner of the state, but it's pretty close, and it's a very small town. Uh, Yes. This is black. This is uh, black in the valley, and I would love to know and have you share with our listeners. How did you get to Granville? I kind of is going to assume here you weren't born and raised there. I, I, it is a mystery to me how I got to Granville. <laughs> oh and, and let me tell you, uh, I did not apply for that church. I did not didn't even know there was a Granville existed. But to my imagination, someone uh, in the skies of the American Baptist churches in the UCC called my name. And all of a sudden, I came for an interview. I had spent 10 years in a church in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, traveling back and forth. And all of a sudden, I got a call. They said, we'd like to invite you to interview. And after two hours... They said, how would you like to come to Granville? And there was a lot of, I had to give a lot of hope to that place. I had been to many places and wanted to retire, wanted to do other things. And it was important to me to, to meet uh, this group of people on a level. It was an opportunity to, to, to create fellowship and inclusiveness and also to teach 
that uh, this African-American pastor can love you too. This pastor can go into your community and not be afraid, but I can love you and empower you. And it's also our learning for that congregation and those people there because of the 100% the, the uh, 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 Irish, Catholic, German, Swedish, Jewish community and to speak to them and to visit them and, and, and they come into my space and we come together, my wife and I, we fell in love with them because they had a unity that many congregations do not have outside of Southwick and Granville. So often we claim that small places have no power, but they have power and they have grit. And they needed someone, a clergy person, to treat them like they are special too. Because so often we go to the big churches and the, and, and, uh, you know, the large churches, the community, but small places have powerful people. Even Christ came from a small place. And so part of that empowerment and, and all the struggles that I have gone through through my life, I turned it around and began to go back and love the stranger. And when we learn to go into uncomfortable places and love them and empower them, our world becomes a better place. Our politics doesn't matter. What we think, what is not important, but can we empower people? And we're missing something, a whole nation, politics, economics. So we have to learn to empower people as to try to, you know, um, and that's Granville, and it's exciting. Well, let me ask you this. And, uh, let me ask you this, if I might, Reverend Wilson. I, 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 and I want to give the microphone over to Carly uh, and Jacqueline. But before I, I give up the microphone, would you tell us a bit where you're from and touch back on what you were just referring to, which is the church where you, you are the minister? I assume in Granville, Massachusetts, in Western Massachusetts, we're talking about an overwhelmingly white congregation. Yes. Of course. And I'd like to know if, if that's weird for, for you. Well, I tell you one thing, that's not weird. Most of my life, I went to white institutions. Most of my life, I went to white seminaries. Most of my wife, I read white books, great, great theologians. From the time I was 10 years old, a Navy chaplain when I was 25 years old, most of the people who were in my class in the in the 80s were white everything was white so i learned how to navigate the system it is not the whiteness it's the heart of the people so i learned how to uh, equip myself as a leader to not look at whiteness not look at it as strange but but god created me for such a time as this a young boy born in louisiana went to the University of Louisiana in Monroe in 1976, where there were 4,000 students and there was less than 50 blacks in my class. Wow. Going through that, not Harvard and Yale, but a, a university in the deep South that's predominantly white and go through all of that. Wow. And from there, went to Berkeley Divinity School in Berkeley, California for presidential scholarship and finished that program, mostly white people. Good or bad and indifference, I, I, I went through that. And then from there to Seattle, Washington, served the church in Seattle, went into the active duty Navy and stayed on active duty for 10 years. So the strangeness of whiteness is not strange for me. Well, I really appreciate that. Because I've, I've, and, and that's important because people need to be loved. We need to learn how to uh, 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 not allow it to, 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 to not allow the emotions of, of whiteness to become a stumbling block to one's success. We are and my father, my father and mother were able to help us to navigate the system. My father went to Indiana University in 1951. Wow. I'm going to assume he was one of the very few black people in his class. Yes, and uh, became a principal in Rochester, New York. Our family moved to a Jewish neighborhood in Rochester, New York. 
when I was 17 years old. Wow. So we learned a lot about navigation and also escaping the so-called uh, Southern strategy or, you know, the segregation that was real when I grew up. We but education and the religion became the power, the engine for our family. We are talking with the Reverend Johnny M. Wilson, who is the pastor at the Granville Federated Church. This is a special edition of Black in the Valley. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to suggest to Carly and Jacqueline. Now, we're going to take a break now because we're going to come back and we're going to talk to uh, the Reverend Wilson about Watch Night, which is why we have him here. It's something that everyone should know about if you don't. And if you do know about it, you're going to want to join this celebration and observation. We'll do that uninterrupted right after this break. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. At PV Squared Solar, we live by our mission, energizing a brighter future for people and planet. This year, we are celebrating our 20th anniversary. 20 years of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar. 20 years of relationships founded on trust and clean energy. 20 years of powerful cooperation. Thank you for the partnerships along the way, and we look forward to serving this community for 20 years more. Happy birthday, PV Squared! Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Cooper's Corner in Florence can be a real time saver for you around the holidays. When you run out, run in. We have what you need. Cooper's is also the place to order fresh baked from scratch pies or to pick up a nice wine or fresh produce or deli party platters. Cooper's Corner, a part of the community for nearly 50 years. We're the Cooper's. We're your neighbors. We treat you right. Main and Chestnut Streets, Route 9, Florence. Open every day of the year. And in Northampton, State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits has what you need for the holidays and all year long. Open Seven days. The State Street Deli has the cheese you want for holiday entertainment like genuine Italian Parmesan, free with herbs, Morbier, French Saint Andre, and award-winning domestic cheese such as Vermont cheddar, Maytag blue, and goat cheese. You'll also find at State Street a great selection of cold cuts and pâtés, and we create the best deli platters and fruit baskets. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits in Northampton, open till 9 every day. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our Black in the Valley, our special Black in the Valley segment. Today we have with us with Reverend Jacqueline Smith-Crooks and Professor Carly Tartikoff, the Reverend Johnny M. Wilson. Let me turn the microphone over to Reverend Jacqueline Smith-Crooks. Thank you, Bill. Um, And that's been a very rich conversation leading into this. Um, Looking at how we view the night and uh, what it does for and to various ones of us. One of the nights, one of the longest nights in the life of the African-American enslaved community was December 31st, 1862, 
would you tell us about that night, Dr. Wilson? That, that night was that, that night was a very special night. And it included the power of the spirit, the mind, and then the heart. To believe that a present would do something to inspire and free enslaved people. It was a celebration that they were free from tyranny, flight, and disappointment. And the church came out all of the watch night experience a time for enslaved slaves to be free what what was that um i have family down in georgia saying they were engaged in an intergenerational conversation and somebody mentioned uh, they were or they had gone to watch night service what, what is not what was? What is Watch Night Service, and and where do you find it being held? I I know that you are in a community where there are few people who look like us. Um, I don't know if they celebrate Watch Night. Well, I sort of know, but tell us about Watch Night. Watch Night also included a fellowship. Let me interrupt for one second. We're having some feedback problems. Carly, perhaps you could mute, mute your microphone because I think what's happening is that the Reverend's uh, talk is coming through your mic again. Let's try that. Reverend, you want to start over on that? What what Watch yes. Night is? Yeah. Watch Night is... I'm getting that feedback. Yeah. Watch Night begins with the power of fellowship, food, community and connection. It is a story that helps us to understand our ancestors and the importance of being able to tell their story. And they told their story through song and thanksgiving. I'm still getting the yeah, I'm really sorry about the feedback loop. I don't know why it's happening. I really don't. Um, maybe Dan Torres, who are, or a magician at the board here, can do something to help this out. Um, okay. Yeah. Reverend Howard, I think we're, I think we're good now. Why was it called Watch Night? They were watching for the decision to be free. They were waiting for the opportunity to uh, be free because Watch Night meant that there will be minimized suffering, that slaves would be removed uh, from plantations and be free. This is waiting for Not the Emancipation all... Proclamation? Is that what we're watching for? Right. Okay. Right. And this was very important. And this was a, a plan uh, that President Lincoln believed he had to convince the spiritual leaders that this would be possible. And so watching and waiting uh, was, was also spiritual, but it also would free their souls that they would have be able to tell their story, that they would no longer be bound by the tyranny of pain and suffering in a world that uh, they had never known. Reverend Wilson, I, I'm going to interrupt just briefly, and I think Carly has a note to share with us about that. Yes, that you were you were the statement you were making. Carly, go right ahead. I was just going to uh, read part of that proclamation uh, that was served on January 1st as the mm -hmm. war entered its third year. Mm -hmm. that all persons within the rebellious states would be freed. Yes. Uh, I think we don't have a lot of time, but uh, I do think that it would be best to go on with 
with your commentary, Reverend okay. Wilson. And I would like to know, Reverend Wilson, if you could, um, watch night. Uh, it's New Year's Eve, uh, 1862. Uh, the enslaved people in the United States are waiting for this much-anticipated uh, wartime a declaration by the president, President Lincoln, watch night, which would free the slaves in the South, uh, not in the uh -huh. North, by the way. And not just, a, yeah. yeah. And not all slaves. Not exactly. I'd like to know how watch night is still observed and whether it's still important. Yeah. Uh, yeah watch night in, in African-American churches where there's been a lot of oppression and the, the stir of the ancestors is still being observed even today. Uh, particularly the church that I serve in Providence, um, it was a very powerful church. It came out of Condon Street, which is one of the oldest churches in America, in Providence. It's over 200 years old. And they still observe and remember the Underground Railroad. They had their meals after service. At 12 o'clock at night, they would have the greens and the peas and the mm -hmm. rice, the hammocks. This tradition is still going on today. And churches that are particularly probably more conservative in African-American churches, but it's still alive today because it remembers the power of the church. The church was very important in those days and the power of prayer and the power of what it meant to, to have prayer at midnight. And many of the hush houses doing slavery down south, they would have services at night after coming in the fields, working in the fields at 12 and 13 hours. After they would eat, they would prepare. Many times they would, they would have services at night with lanterns in 9 and 10 and 11 o'clock at night because they would work the fields. And then they would have their services at night because they were free. And so Watch Night is a culmination of so much that has been done for generations and generations that some of these enslaved people. Uh, so it is a, it is a, a memory. It is a, it, it is a uh, sort of a uh, something that we should never forget. And, you, and I think so often- We're gonna have to stop here, unfortunately. Thank you. I hope that we get you back to talk further. I am available. And this has been Black in the Valley. Our special guest has been the Reverend Johnny Wilson. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. When I move my body just like this, I don't know why, but I feel like this. This is Bill Newman, First Night Northampton is back, live and in person. 21 family-friendly venues, over 100 performances from noon to midnight. Purchase your pins at firstnightnorthampton.org. Pick them up on the second floor of Thorns Marketplace on the 31st. Your pin opens every door at the largest performing arts festival in the state. Municipal parking lots are free, so join us for music, acrobats, DJs, comics, magicians, and so much more. There's also a fantastic fireworks display at 6 p.m. Northampton First Night, a place to be on New Year's Eve. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills. Live and or local if you want news and talk for, for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.